several of you asked me this morning what it was like driving on the Audubon. What you don't know about me is this. When I was a young boy, 12 to 15, 16, my desire was to drive Indy-style race cars. I didn't have an Indy-style race car, but I felt like I was close uh, on the Audubon. Uh, you know, the, the idea is that on the Audubon, at places, there are no speed limits. And so I braved, the first week I was there, I braved and got up to about 140 uh, kilometers per hour, which is about, I got my little chart I made here, about 86.9 miles per hour. After a few days of that, when I was by myself, hadn't, I, there for a few days, I had people in the car with me, so I was a little more cautious. So after I left uh, Wetzler and was on my way over to, uh, toward uh, uh, I, uh, Eisenach, I got on the Autobahn and I, I braved a little more and I got up to 150 kilometers per hour, which is uh, 93.2 miles an hour. And I, I got really, on my last days coming back from uh, Wittenberg back to Frankfurt to get ready to fly out, I got really ambitious and I drove 180 kilometers an hour. And that's about 112 miles per hour. I really wanted to hit 200 kilometers an hour, which is 124. But every time I'd say I was going to do it, I would chicken out. But here's the funny thing. I'm cruising along at 180 kilometers an hour, 112 miles an hour, and I'm in the right lane like you're supposed to be because they'll get you if you're in the left lane and not going super fast. And I'm sitting there, and I see nobody behind me, and all of a sudden, something goes, vroom! And I see this blur going ahead of me. Just went by. I'm doing 180 kilometers an hour, 112 miles an hour, and I'm being passed as though I had pulled off on the side of the road. So I felt like I maybe was uh, at Indianapolis just a little bit. It, it, was, it was an experience. Never got the courage to get up to, up to 200, though. I just couldn't do it. So just call me a coward, if you will. But it was a great experience. Even the Audubon was a great experience. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 is a continuation of Romans chapter 5. Don't ever think about the books of the Bible, especially Paul's, well, all of them really, but Paul's letters particularly as being, okay, Paul had this thought in chapter 6, and then he stopped that thought and he moved to another thought in chapter 7 or, or in chapter 5 to chapter 6. That's not the way it is. The verses and the, and the chapters, you know, you've been told this many times, the verses and the chapters are very arbitrary by the translators through the years. They were translating along, they said, well, this Seemed like a good place to make a break, and they'd put a verse there. And then they'd say, well, this looks like a more major break, and they'd put a chapter there. And sometimes that works really, really well, and sometimes it doesn't work so well. And when you come to chapter 5 and chapter 6, it's my contention and my belief that it doesn't really work that well because what Paul is saying in chapter 6 is purely a continuation of chapter 5. He's answering statements that he has made and objections to those statements that have been raised, obviously, by the people who are reading this letter and by those around him who are here preaching. And so this idea in chapter, uh, chapter 6 is just continuing right out of chapter 5. Don't miss that. 
You cannot separate chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 from chapter 5 verses 20 and 21. Those two are, are complete thoughts together. And if you separate those, you miss the whole idea of what the apostle is trying to say. So I want us to begin by reading chapter 6 and beginning verse 1. And I'm actually going to read the first 12 verses. Because there is a, uh, really the first 14 verses, there's a, there's a thought here that we're going to look at over the next few weeks, probably over the next six or eight weeks in this section, that Paul begins in verses 1 and 2, which will be our focus today, but he amplifies and builds on over the next verses. So I want us to look at 1 and 2 in depth today, but I want us to think about it in context of what he's saying, and we'll even go back in context of chapter 5 in a minute. Hear what Paul says. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the, de- but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Do not make it... Do, to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. But present yourselves to God. Present yourself to God. For sin will have no dominion over you. Since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of our Lord. When Paul begins this verse, what shall we say then? He's referring back to the passage that we looked at two weeks ago on this day from Romans chapter 5. Where the Apostle Paul said in verse 20, Now the law came to increase the trespass. You remember us talking about that? The law came to increase the trespass. And we said, why would would law being given increase the trespass? And I told you about my little finger. And about a hundred of you came by after the service and said, can we see your finger? And I, I said, sure, here's my little finger that I cut off. When my dad said, don't touch that fan belt, and I just had to touch it. Because he said not to. And I suffered the consequences. And when God says, thou shalt not in the Ten Commandments, there is something within us that says, well, why not? 
Why can I not do what I want to do? Am I not a free moral agent? Do I not have the ability to make decisions and make choices? Why can't I do what I want to do? And, and when law is given, it increases the sin. Sin is a natural response to the law being given. Now, now we think, oh no, we're, we're very law-abiding citizens. Uh, we, we watch the laws around us and we try to obey those and we do those things. And so, so we, we say, the God says, don't do it. We don't do it. That's about as big of a lie as you'll ever believe if you believe that. Because the truth is, the law increases sin. Then he went on to say in verse 20, he said, not only did the law come to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where there is sin, there is more grace. We just sang on, in, our, in our worship time, singing time, part of worship this morning, we sang His mercy is more. My sins, they are many. His mercy is more. And, and for that we say thank you, God, because it, it means that even though we do sin, and, and even especially when we're in Christ, we are filled with sin. Uh, excuse me, when we're in Adam, we're filled with sin. When we're in Christ, His mercy is more abundant than we could ever imagine, and it's greater than our sin. All through that fifth chapter, the Apostle Paul kept using his favorite phrase, much more than, much more will Christ do this, much more will Christ overcome Adam in you, much more will Christ do what he sets out to do in your life. I mean, that is one of Paul's great themes, and one that I and we ought to be grateful for in every single day. But, but Paul begins chapter 6 with this vehement rejection of the notion that God's grace gives a license to sin. If you remember, I said there were some in Paul's day when they heard that statement, our sins are many, of His grace is more. His grace is always abounding. And where sin increases, grace abounded all the more. Uh, some would say, well, Paul, that's great. Because I can just go on sinning. I can do what I want to do. I don't have to worry about it. I'm, I'm free. I, and I'll, I'll sin all the more so God's grace will be all the more. And... and and Paul, that's a great thought. And there are people in our day that view it that way. There are people in our day, I've heard this throughout my whole life and my whole ministry, 40-something years, that, you know, if, if, if God's grace abounds when sin is there, then I don't have to worry about holiness. I don't have to worry about sanctification. I don't have to worry about, about growing in grace and overcoming sin in my life. I'll just sin, and, and the more I sin, the more God's grace will be there, and everybody will be happy. God will be happy with His grace, and I'll be happy in my sin. And that is about the most gross misunderstanding of what Paul is saying that you will ever, ever find. But he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin? How can we who died to sin still live in it? It's a great question. And Paul wants us to ask that to ourselves and apply that to ourselves from this passage. First, I want you to see three things, though. Three things about that first brief statement. When Paul says, what shall we say then? And the question is, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? I, I want to contend to you this morning that, first of all, that is a very logical question based on what Paul said in chapter 5. It's very logical. If someone comes up to you and says, you know, the more you sin, the more goodness you're going to get, the logical question would be, well, then do I just continue sinning and doing that in order I can get more? If somebody tells you at work tomorrow, 
where you're working, you know, the more you do at work, whatever your job is, the more money you're going to get for doing that, you're going to say, well, that's a, that's a great return. That's what I want. So surely we want a greater return on God's grace. So I'll just sin so that I can see God's grace all the more because as a Christian, God has to forgive me. I've heard people tell me that. You know, I, I, I call them on a sin or something. Well, I, you know, I'm a Christian. God has to forgive me. That is not believing in grace. That is believing in presumption. That is believing that God owes you something because at some point you made some kind of decision or made some kind of statement that you believe in Christ. And Paul here is absolutely negating that idea very adamantly. You know, shall we go on sinning in order that grace may increase? Even though it's a logical question coming out of it, Paul says, I want you to understand if that's your question, if that's what you believe, then you're believing erroneously. Second thing, it's, it's, a, it's a question that even our, our very nature would raise within us. Our very nature would raise that. Well, if, if God's grace is going to abound, let me sin all the more. It's not only logical, it's also natural. The reason it's natural is this. Quite honestly, and if you're honest, I don't know if you'll be honest with me or not this morning. I won't ask you to raise your hand. But, but if you're honest this morning, the, the simple reality is sin is fun. Sin brings pleasure. Now, the Scripture does tell us that it brings pleasure for a season, and then there's judgment, then there's problems. But, but, but the, at the outset of sin, whatever it is, when we're disobeying God, we only do that because it brings us some kind of pleasure and some kind of fulfillment of some kind of desire. We like to do it. Otherwise, we wouldn't keep on doing it. If somebody gives me a glass of buttermilk, I will take one swallow perhaps, but I will spit it out because I hate buttermilk. But if somebody gives me a a nice, cold glass of iced tea and I take one sip of it, I'm going to keep on sipping on it. I'm going to keep on drinking it. Why? Because that is a pleasurable drink to me. Buttermilk, not so much. Tea, very much. That's why we fall into sin even as believers. There's a fun element to it. There's an enjoyable element to it, or we wouldn't get involved in it. Therefore, you know, any kind of suggestion that we can escape the penalty for our sin and still enjoy the action arouses a considerable degree of interest within every person. I can still enjoy, and the sin is and the penalty is removed, then why not just sin so the penalty can be overcome all the more by God's grace? It's a logical question. And it's a natural question. But finally, I want you to notice also, it's phrased in such a way, and I'm sure this is an exact question that Paul has been asked. It's phrased in such a way that that the question really sounds rightly motivated and even pious. Well, you know, Paul, if, if when sin is greater, God's grace is greater, then God gets more glory when His grace is greater. So isn't it, isn't it just good that we sin so that, so that God will get even more glory? I mean, we, we want to glorify God. That's our basic purpose. So why don't we just keep sinning, let His grace abound, and we'll glorify Him all the more. Isn't that a very pious and, and, and lovely thought? I mean, it's a logical question. It's a natural question. It can be even made to sound religious and rightly motivated and pious. We're doing it for the glory of God. We're sinning so that grace may increase. 
So it's logical, it's personal, it's, 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 it's natural, and it can even sound religious. But Paul immediately, after asking that question and repeating that question that he's being asked, immediately responds by this, one short three words, by no means. I love the way some of the translations translate that portion of the Greek text there. They, some will say, like the King James Version says, God forbid. Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? God forbid. It's a total misunderstanding of the gospel. Phillips, in his translation paraphrase, seems to catch the same note of horror when it says, shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? Uh, Phillips translated, what a ghastly thought. Just, it's horrible to even think that way, Phillips translated it. I like the way the New English Bible, which is not one of my favorite translations, but I do like the way that the New English Bible translates that particular section. When Paul says, shall we go on sinning that grace may abound all the more, the New English Bible puts it very simply, no, no. I guess that's the... We see here a no-no in the Christian experience. No-no. But it's expressing that it's just not right. It's just not true. But why not? Because the truth is, God's grace does abound all the more where there is sin. Where sin increases, what Paul said is an absolute true statement. Where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. So why is it a no-no? Why is it a God forbid? Why is it a heaven's no? Why is it such a ghastly thought? Paul goes into that. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who have died to sin still live in it. Now, there are several ways that that statement has been totally misinterpreted through the years. And, and, and one way is it doesn't mean that, the, uh, that, that sin is dead to me. It, it doesn't mean that as a Christian I've reached the place where I cannot sin, though many people take it to mean that. I remember my early ministry, particularly in, in seminary and right after seminary, hearing preachers that that I admired at that time at one level, who, who were preaching saying that they had not sinned in X number of years since they had become a Christian. I remember one in particular who said, I, I look in the, he, he preached a sermon entitled, you can probably still find this online if you want to find his name, I'm not going to give you his name, because I like the guy, but he preached a sermon called Turkeys and Eagles. And a turkey is a dumb, sinning animal, and an eagle is a soaring, beautiful creature that soars above all the earth and, and is above everything. And he said, when I look in the mirror every morning, I don't see a turkey, I see an eagle. Because since I came to Christ and experienced a, another level of maturity, I don't sin anymore. I, I heard, it's been called through the years the deeper life or, or fullness, the completely sanctified life or the totally victorious life. I mean, it's had a lot of names through the years, but they've all said the same thing, that a Christian who has usually received some kind of second blessing or something, they no longer are, are, are alive to sin. Sin is totally dead to them, and they no longer sin. That's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is obviously dealing here 
in, in these words was something that happens when Christ cancels out our debt for sin on the cross. He's obviously talking about the penalty. We're no longer under the penalty of sin. We are now justified. We are now being sanctified. And we'll get to that later in this book. And we're now being, we're growing in Christ and we're clothed in His righteousness. And so we are not under the penalty of sin anymore. But Paul says, if that is the case, then how in the world can we who have died to the penalty of sin, died to sin... How can we continue, he says, to live in it? Now, it's important to hear that phrase. How can we continue to live in it? I want to tell you, and I've told you this numerous times before, probably hundreds, maybe even thousand times before, I still sin. I still sin. Now, before your imaginations got going wild, you're not going to guess any of them probably. Because things you'd guess are what we would call, you know, the big ones. And and mine, we would classify as little, but in God's eyes, those are big ones. I I still sin. The, The key is, do I live in it? Is it a way of life? Is it something where I rationalize that, that, you know, God's grace is going to be greater because of my sin that's disobedient to Him. So, so I'm okay because His grace will cover that. His grace will deal with it. Paul says, how can you even ask such a question? How can we who have died to sin in Christ and are in Christ, and he'll deal with union with Christ even more a little bit later, how can we continue to live in it? How can it still be a part of a continuing thing in our life? How can it still have dominion over us? How can we still be enslaved to it? How can we still be caught up in it in such a way that we will not see that the grace of God is there to break us free from that sin and set us free from it? That's what Paul is asking here. And he's going to amplify on it by talking about things that that he, he goes on in this passage to talk about that I was going to review earlier, but... I'm not going to take time to do it really now, but in verse 3, he says, you know, we are baptism united us with Christ. In verse 4 and 5, he says we share in Christ's death, and we also share in his resurrection. He's going to say in 6 and 7, that our former self is crucified with Christ in order that we might be freed from sin's slavery. I mean, do you hear that? Paul is saying, listen, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? How can it be our way of life? How can it be something that we rationalize daily that, well, it's okay because I'm in Christ. I've made a decision. I've I've been baptized, so it must be okay. I must be being forgiven all along the way. Paul says, by no means. Can that be a part of a believer's life? Yes, they will sin. Yes, there will be sin. Yes, we will still struggle. But as a way of life, as a continuing part of our life, Paul says a believer can't do that. You say, Bill, am I supposed to question my salvation? I've been a Christian for since I was a 10-year-old kid or earlier. I mean, am I supposed to question that? If there is continuing, ongoing, living sin in your life, yes, you are to question that. 
according to God's word, on the authority of God's word. If you sin and you confess it and you deal with it and you repent of it, then no, that's what Paul's saying here. You don't live on in it. It becomes a part of your, of your confession. It becomes a part of your repentance. You know, in the, in the very first, I'll, I'll get a lot of Luther references over the next few weeks, I'm sure. But in, in, in his first thesis that he nailed to the Wittenberg door, his first thesis was, is when Christ said repent, he meant for repentance to be a part of the, every Christian's life throughout the entirety of the Christian life. That's Haynes' paraphrase. But, but when he said repent, he meant repentance was not something you just do when you make a profession of faith. But repentance is something that takes place every time sin crops up in your life and the Spirit of God through His Word brings conviction. You say, Lord, that is not in agreement with your will in my life and I repent of it and I turn from it. That's what Paul is saying here. You don't live on in it. Whatever else these words mean, it's clear that what happens in Christ is the canceling out of what happened in Adam. We were in Adam. We're now in Christ. The debt has been paid. The debt has been canceled. Pastor Todd read from Ephesians chapter 5 a little earlier. And in that fifth verse of that, he said, For, for you may be sure of this. I like the way you may be sure of this. You may be certain of this. You can mark this down, Paul says. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, ooh, covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Or 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's a pretty broad spectrum there. We want to zero only in one or two of those, but they're all put there together. And listen to what he says. I, I love this statement because it resonates with me. And such were some of you. We have no right to be holier than thou because Paul says, remember, you were just like that yourself. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I, I think the I think it's clear and fully answers the question that Paul posed there. Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound all the more? By no means, heaven forbid, God forbid. What are you thinking? What a horrible thought. No. No, no. Even. Paul says it's important. He's saying that there's a great hope for those who are caught up in any of these things. There's hope, there's a way of deliverance, there's a way to be set free. It's not, the way that involve, it's not a way that involves going on with the same lifestyle. But Jesus Christ came to free us from sin and not allow us to continue in it. To free us from it. So that when it does crop up, we're not captivated by it, we're not enslaved by it, we're not carried along with it. 
But when it does come up, the grace of God, the power of God, the Spirit of God, the Word of God convicts a believer. And they are compelled by His grace and His power to turn from it. That's a mark of, the belie- that's a mark of a believer as given in God's Word. It's a mark of a believer that we, we struggle, yes. We sin, yes. We enjoy it, no. We continue to live in it? Absolutely not. There has to be a break. The question that we really must face about ourselves is simply this. Have you really begun to hate sin deep inside of you? Scripture tells us to hate what God hates, love what God loves. Have you really begun to hate sin in your life, your own sin, not the sin around you. We all, we all hate the sin we see around us, don't we? We all hate the sin that we see in other people's lives, but the question we have to ask is, do you hate the sin that's in your life that tempts you? The, the things that you do wrong and for the moment you choose to do, have you begun to hate it? Do you want to be free from it? Do you want to be delivered from it? Do, do you want the power of it broken in your life? By the Lord Jesus Christ. You can only want that because there's come into your heart the Spirit of God. You can only want that because there's a union with Christ that brings about His Spirit indwelling in us. So, so from that vantage point, from that vantage point, the Spirit of God is beginning to assert the control of His purity throughout our whole life. Not perfectly yet. To show that purity through our whole life. You can't settle for sin anymore. In chapter 6, Paul is going to help us understand more about how this works. But here he makes it unquestionably clear. Can we go on sinning? May it never be. Can we go on living in sin? May it never be. That's simply what he says. Simply what the Spirit of God says to us today through his word. Come to Christ. Believe in Christ. Walk with Christ. Struggle through this life. See the temptations that come that are pleasurable things, that are, uh, that are a, a, a totally, totally opposite of what God wants in your life. And as Luther said, see that Christ said repent. And he means for that to be a part of your life from beginning to end in the Christian life. It's not just a beginning factor. It's a continuing factor. It's my question for you. The question for me today. Do you really hate sin that you struggle with? And don't sit there piously, any one of you or me, and say, oh, not, I don't struggle with sin. No, I don't have any problem with sin. Then you're a liar, the Scripture says, and the truth is not in you, and you're sinning doing that. Let's pray.